0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Sinkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, psychic, author, spellcaster, root worker, and witch... You can find her at m i s s a i d a M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com, tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And also, this episode is being sponsored by Alan Questel. And you can find him at uncommonsensing.com. And you can find his new book on Amazon, which is called intentional acts of kindness and now without further ado our guests for today are the return of our monthly co-host or sometimes more hopefully we'll see jared murphy and jerry wells and you know my very regular listener you've heard me and jared talk about jet um the story of G.E. Kincaid and the lost treasure or treasure or city, whatever it is that was found in the Grand Canyon. I'm not even sure of that because we don't know. And uh, it's a topic that we've all had in common. I thought it would be fun to talk about it here. So thanks, guys, for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: All right. So, um, Jerry. What is your knowledge and experience on the um, story of Kincaid and the uh, whatever it is that he found, or supposedly found, in the Grand Canyon?
2: Yeah, well, first we should definitely, uh, definitely uh, reference the fact that you and I had a really great long... We've had a few long talks. There's a couple episodes back here on yeah. everything imaginable for people should definitely uh, follow up with because we chatted prior to me going... And then post me going, and the exact location is on Navajo, it's on Navajo land. And uh, when I went, you know, we may not have used any type of very long selfie stick to use very detailed photography to look exactly where within the, um, the location that the cave is alleged. And, you know, after four days of work, we were not able to locate the cave uh, with very detailed imaging of the side of the canyon where the cave is supposed to be. But maybe the cave is, again, what what don't we know uh, was that we did not have a thermal drone. We were not there at night. Not that we used a drone, but we were there. And if we had thermal imaging of some kind, We maybe could pick up a heat differential if there was a collapsed cave entrance that wasn't maybe too crowded with rock or something. So, hypothetically, outside of it being a collapsed cave entrance, based on the only descriptions we have of where the Kincaid Cave is, we were not able to locate it. And it was four days of work. But that's that's the... I still think we went through a lot of detail of the story. So, for those of you listening... And you want to catch Gary and I talking about it, you should definitely look into our past episodes on everything imaginable. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I—I I, it was a great time going out there. Um, I mean, I always like getting in the field, but that was, that was all I have to really say on its location. Now, no one ever talks about like, well, if we found the cave, there's always a speculation as to where did the artifacts end up or, you know, is it another Smithsonian cover up or. Whatnot, but that I don't really have anything else to add on that. Maybe Jerry does.
1: Well, I can tell you how we got interested in this and what happened. <clears throat> we heard about this story, geez, I don't even remember. Uh, probably 99, 2000, something like that. I'm sure Kat remembers much more. You know, Lately. When was the cat? When we first started looking at Kincaid Cave? 99? Okay. She's the brains of the operation, so if there's any question, I'll tell you a little anecdotal story about that in a minute. Um, so we got together with some friends that were as interested as we were, and we started taking a look at all of the information one of the things that um, we were going by was this article in the Arizona Gazette, I think, that uh, talked about Kincaid and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, Well, it referenced an article prior to the one that we had, but no one had ever found that article, ever. And so most people figured it was just, you know, a mistype or they misspoke or who knows what, but no one could ever find the prior article until Kathy came along and she started doing some very deep research, which is what she does, and we found that there was a copy of the Arizona Gazette in a private collection in Yuma, and it had the prior story. So we got a copy of that. and we published that. And this, this prior story really filled in all the details. So from that, and I don't remember what the prior story said. I haven't looked at that in a decade. But from that, we were able to determine that wherever this might have been, uh, it would definitely have to be where the uh, Little Colorado merged into the Colorado River. And from that fork forward, at some point, and not very far, this is where that cave would be found. We also, with Kathy's um, help, of course, uh, she looked into Wesley Powell's uh, information. Uh, Everything about him, what he did, where he was, all the details... And then we looked into this fellow, Kincaid, and found out everything about him that there was to find. He was like one of the firstborn sons in Idaho. For example, his father was a mason. Kincaid actually found what they called uh, an Egyptian egg. I don't know what it was, but it was a large egg that had been just, you know, carved out, like you see in the Orient. So... They got uh, Powell charged Kincaid to go back and look into this. Now, the reason they were so intent on looking into this, and everyone says, well, there's plenty of riches there, whether it's from the past or just natural resources. Well, that's true. But one of the things that happened that everyone misses is that there were these two brothers who were up there in that area. They were hunting and prospecting prospecting. There was at one point, uh, this, this sounds cliche, but the daughter of a chief of the Paiute tribe that was about to be mauled by a mountain lion. And these guys were hunters. They killed it. The chief was very grateful, but he wasn't very happy that they were on his property either. So instead of killing them, he said, look, we really appreciate what you did. I'm paraphrasing. We really appreciate what you did. And since you're looking for gold, we're going to give you all the gold you can carry, but you never come back. They said, okay. So they were taken to this place out uh, in the desert near the Grand Canyon. And... There was a cave that was full of all kinds of gold, of gold objects. The brothers took all they could carry on their animals, and they were told to leave and never come back. So they left. They went from there up to Salt Lake City, which was the nearest city for them to go to and dispose of this gold. The backstory, or the meanwhile, that's taking place is that powell knows that there's something going on out there and he knows there's lost cities there's riches there's all kind who knows what so consequently <clears throat> all the places that would receive gold they were looking for any kind of gold artifacts and if they found something they washington wanted to know about it powell was now the secretary of the interior so the brothers show up in salt lake city Here's all these gold things. They trade it in. They get their money. Washington's notified. And Powell says, get a hold of Kincaid, because he's a famous mountaineer, rough guy explorer. Send him down the river and give him my notes on what I found. Kincaid gets involved. He goes down the river. Now, most people doing this would not have the latest cameras made by Kodak. These are not small things. But he had lots of film, and he had a couple of cameras, and he knew how to use them. And he had people with him. And he went down the river. He got to the place that Powell had found with the Moki steps, where they just carved them in and climb up. They're called Mokey Steps, And that's where Powell got in trouble because he only had one arm. He had to be rescued off of that. Well, Kincaid had no trouble at all. He climbed all the way up. It's like 1,800 feet, round numbers, from the surface of the Colorado River up to this landing. And when he got there, he found this cave. And so he went inside. And when he got inside, of course, the story... Has been, you know, uh, repeated many times about all the things he might or might not have found, but it's a pretty fantastic story. And that's the information that we were able to glean. This is all the little bits and pieces of the details. Another sidebar on this whole thing about the gold Lincoln had this thing called the Golden Triangle Project. He was going to move the capital of the United States over to Utah. wanted to be in the, that part of the country because it would be very difficult for the enemy to get that far in without encountering terrific problems. Well, of course people didn't like that and, and Lincoln was assassinated and who knows what the underlying reasons were, but he never got completed with this golden uh, pyramid project. There's a lot more to this story, but I'll continue on to the, the cave aspect. So with all of these details in hand, we know now within a very short range, really, where this is at. So using Google Earth, we start plotting out exactly where we're going to have our base camp and where this cave might be. There were only two ways of getting to this cave. For now, one is to go down the old salt trail, get down to the Colorado River, go down, cross at the confluence, get to the other side, then go down the river a piece, and then start climbing up. problem is, um, the people who were there and emptied out the cave, they basically got rid of those steps. So getting up there at this point is impossible. You'd have to be a rock climber and know what you're doing and know where to start. The other is to go to the edge and try to rappel down. Well, it's about 2,800 feet down. So that was the harebrained idea we came up with. There were no drones when we were doing this. We spent four years up there off and on, off and on, off and on mapping, figuring, and doing every bit of research that we could do, we found where uh, the railroad tracks and narrow-gauge line have been laid down to that part of the canyon uh, using satellite uh, thermal uh, technology. We just happened to get a break and get that. We also found that there were two spots where the people inside this cave would have gone up to the surface because that's where they were doing their farming. Those have had bulldozers pushing rocks and debris into those holes to just plug them up. But on on satellite imaging, thermal technology, you can still see it's cooler than the rest of the desert, which is how we located it. And um, so we, we spent this much time. We found where they had set up a pulley system to pull whatever they could get out of the cave up to the surface to load onto the train cars, whatever they were, that were parked right close by the spot where we were at. But all evidence of what they used was taken away. All that's left is just the remains of the abrasions on the rocks and some of the anchoring bolts that they used so that they could go over the edge. So we Eventually, after three years, we decided that we needed to figure out a way to repel down. And that's where we had three individuals who said that they were experienced and could do it. Well, we don't know a damn thing about doing this. So consequently, we took them at their word, and they promptly got themselves into trouble. So they basically... Uh, We're getting set up and figuring all this stuff out, and first, there was this airplane that flew below the rim of the canyon, and, you know, we couldn't see that clearly, but there were people in there looking our direction, so we don't know what that was all about, and planes are not allowed to fly below the canyon, Um, so I got that on film, Um, So these three guys, they hiked down over the edge as far as they could. They tied off their ropes, and their idea is that they're going to go down because it's a series of of, uh, shelves all the way down. We were supposed to start at 5 in the morning. They started about noon. Bad idea because those rocks pick up the heat and re-radiate the heat. And we quickly discovered that there's no amount of water you can carry that's going to be enough. At one point, one of these fellows was hanging at the end of a 300-foot rope. Not at the end, of course, but he'd gone down and he had heat exhaustion. And so the doctor that was on hand with our team, he put together a solution Kathy climbed over the edge, climbed down as far as she could to meet one of the guys coming back up. He took it back down. Meanwhile, the other guy, the Army Ranger, was pulling and just one at time after another, hand over hand, getting this guy back up to that short ledge where they were now sitting, giving him pieces of cactus to suck on, at least to get some moisture because he was severely dehydrated at that point, heat exhaustion. So the other fellow gets down there with all the things he needs to help with this fellow dehydrated. And from that point, another eight hours before they could climb from there and get out of there. So it was like two o'clock in the morning when they got to the top, back to the staging area. And we figured at that point, this isn't going to happen. There's no way in hell to get down there. But we know exactly where it's at. So... A few years later, and maybe a decade later, Scott Walter from uh, America on Earth contacted me about this. He wanted to do a story about it. So he and I went down there, and part of this uh, escapade was telling all the details of the story, like I'm telling you now. It was supposed to be Kathy and I doing this on the show. But the producer said, no. We only need one of you. Kathy can stay home, which really pissed me off. And I almost didn't do the show because of that. But I did. And they wanted to know dates and facts and figures. And Kathy spent more than four years researching every tiny detail about this. So she had it all just right there in her mind. You know, what day, what month what year and so on even down to what time so we did this and finally the uh the apex of the show was scott walter and i and a camera guy got into a helicopter and we flew over to our base camp staging area and as we're flying over i mean we're just so high everything looks different But I could make out what looked like the triangular-shaped rock. Because it's a triangular-shaped rock that's right in front of the entrance to this cave. And I asked the gal if she could drop down a thousand feet so I could see it better. We didn't have any binoculars with us. She couldn't do it, against the law. So, uh, that was pretty much the end of that. We did some filming, uh, did the show. And once all was said and done, it was a pretty good show. But um, anyway, as far as the thing in the Grand Canyon goes, we're 98% to the good on where the entrance is. It's just how on earth do you get to it? It is exceedingly dangerous. And because of our experience and how dangerous it is, we have been very reticent to reveal where you exactly go over so you can hit where the entrance is at because I don't want to be giving people information and they end up dead that just isn't a good idea at all so we've just been sitting on the information hoping at some point that either uh, well not either but that some technology emerges that would allow us to very uh, effortlessly get to this point so we can go in we know the upper entrances are it corresponds with where we think the other entrance is the main entrance is and another interesting point about this too is why is there a cave there why were there people in there when it's so hard to get from the river up to the cave and it's not a question that's been asked very frequently maybe not at all But we were asking that question and what we came up with is that there was at one time a natural dam called um, the Quaggot Dam and it's where two volcanoes went off simultaneously on either side of the Grand Canyon and the lava flowed down and it blocked off the Grand Canyon like a big dam. And at that point the entrance to the cave would just be a short distance uh, above the water So then we started looking deeper into that. And what Kathy discovered is that the folks from Asia, we don't know specifically, not China, not Japan, not Philippines, just Asia, because we don't know. She found historical reference where they were making pilgrimages from Asia, going around the tip of the Baja, going up the Colorado River all the way until they got to this dam. Now we know the Colorado River was navigable by large large ships. So uh, they got up there, they got out, they went to the top of this, this dam, there were boats waiting and they went and their point in going was to go to the Canyon of Light to see the Child of the Sun. And that's what's in that cave are the remnants of that religious center. It would be after the Quaggett Dam broke, uh, following a series of earthquakes, that all the water went away and the people couldn't stay there. So they left. The woman who was the mother of the Child of the Sun went south. She was well known her husband had died many years before they went south to casa Grande. and in casa Grande, they established a new center it was at that point and about the same time as the rivers the san pedro and the gila were running like massive rivers like the missouri river There were around 3 million people who were living in the uh, Tucson area in prehistoric times. They had all these mines. Even the first precursors to the Templars were showing up there. There's evidence of all of this. So, eventually, there was a breaking of of the treaties uh, things really quite went wrong and everything fell into chaos I'm not sure what the timeline is on that but I, I feel that it probably is after a major earthquake that caused the heel on the San Pedro rivers to just sink into the ground because now there's no rivers there really to speak of we're here in Tombstone, Arizona the San Pedro is eight miles from me, and it's just a trickle now. All the water is underground, and it happened pretty much overnight. We saw the same thing happen in Peru after an earthquake. This massive river just vanished. So we know it's possible, but these people migrated away from these areas. Things were forgotten. Things were lost. But this is the reason why you find uh, ancient... uh, bits and pieces of evidence of uh, Asian influence and really influence from a variety of places around the world. What they were mining down there, uh, for example, uh, in in Tucson, between Tucson and Yuma, where the Gila uh, meets up with the Colorado River, of uh, they were mining uh, lead and gold and silver and tin. There' are just so many there's just so many ancient mines where we're at right now. it's unbelievable. So the interest of the cave, to get back to that, it's not collapsed in. It's still very open. And I think if you had a drone with um, heat sensing technology. You know, if you get it, get to where you're looking, you know, well, like with an F, uh, FLIR, like a FLIR cam, you probably could find where the entrance is specifically. The only trick is going to be that big rock in front of it is going to be warmer because it's going to be the one sitting in the sun all the time. So it might mask it somewhat. So I'm not exactly sure. I think you have to get pretty close to be able to see uh, the details on that. The other thing, too, is that the air currents, the farther down you go, to the canyon, they're going back and forth, up and down. We dropped several helium balloons with slight weights and watched their pattern, and it's just completely unpredictable. And where it is right now, in 30 minutes, it'll be totally different. We thought about getting a helium balloon and just floating ourselves down there but there's way to steer it and it becomes exceedingly dangerous if you go up against a cactus pop and there you are you're done so what, happened the...
2: with, oh, what happened with your climbers uh, you said they got heat exhaustion and all that I got I got all that but they didn't want to come back or there there wasn't a better solution for the propelling they really weren't in your league oh that was one of the things we were planning when we were on site, was how I had an eight-man team ready to repel that area. But it's approximately 3,200 feet where that location is. Not one that, for everyone listening, it's not one you've mentioned, but for where we think that the site is off of mile marker 60 on the river, it's approximately 3,200 Frozen froze it up.
1: a second
0: can see if he comes back.
2: Without safety gear to do that in like boots or something. But to get down to it, you're still talking about a 17 1800 uh, rappel of 1800 feet. 1700.
1: Whoops. We've lost yeah. it. Yeah, i will come back.
0: So... Do you think that that with a better set of climbers you, we could you could reach that cave?
1: Probably. Somebody knows what they're doing. I mean, if I were thirty years younger, I would <laughs> I would learn how to do it. But you know, I, it's not that I break ah, easily now. Here he is. Well, wow.
0: I, I maybe maybe Jared, because like one of the reasons I, when I heard your story. And I thought about like what me and Jared have gone through with it. And his expertise with climbing and rappelling, it might solve a problem.
2: Yeah, can you, I'm so sorry. Where did I cut out?
0: Um, you're talking about, about doing an 1,800-foot rappel down to the cave.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a multi-pitch. And, and, and if you were going to do it from the base, if you're going so the couple – again, I could just give my thoughts on it. That If I was a guy in a canoe or boat and on the river – and for those people who have not been there, and, and I think I shared some pictures with Gary that may have gotten posted with our, our interview when we did this a couple of years ago, but the visual sighting of a cave um, from the river would be quite a piece of work in itself. Like to spot, I mean, it would have to be massive for you to even see it. And secondly, to get up 1,800 feet or approximately half the 3,200 foot. So about, you know, maybe 1,600 feet. But from the river for you to tie off and get to it would be quite a feat. And if you could see it. And and rappelling, there's not a lot of places to anchor into to do a multi-pitch rappel. And once you're set up for it, um, I'm just... I was just really curious. Like you said, it's like you can get down, a, you can dangle. I remember that episode, Scott, uh, I remember the episode where they did this. I I, I didn't, um, you know, I, did, I watched the whole thing and I didn't understand how there was video or pictures of the climbers dangling. And it's like, well, where were you guys going to go? Like, where, where, where are we going to do your next? pitch from? Where were you going to do your next connection from? And I didn't understand how if you know you're going to go down, you know, if you're at a 3,200 feet, 32 plus 100 feet, and you're going to go down to the 18 to 1,700 foot from the river range, and you know where you are at what mile marker on the river, then to do multi-pitch, you're going to have to... I was just... I've always wanted to ask this, and I had no idea it was your group that did it, so I'm super curious, like no matter where their skill levels were, and I appreciate that comment earlier, but I was very much interested then in knowing what the backstory was on not trying to throw them under the bus at all. Just what was it that the plan was to do, you know, you, you have to have the ropes and you you have to descend, you know, you're, you know, over a thousand feet. What was, what was the, what was the, what was their ideal plan? I was, I'm super curious.
1: Yeah, I'm curious too. <laughs> oh
2: <laughs> you know, well what we were
1: told well the the guy in charge, his name was John. Hell of a okay. nice guy, smart as can be. Yeah. Uh, and he'd been a friend for a while. He and his buddy and uh, this other fellow from Texas uh, uh, Army Ranger Special Forces. Yeah. So the plan as I recall it was to. They went. They walked down as far as they could, which is what you saw where they decided to repel from. Okay. So at that point, rope is thrown over. Yeah. And they figured that it's going to be about 600 feet down to the next level. Okay. It wasn't. It was way more than that by a couple hundred feet. Huh. So he gets out about 500 foot of rope and he's just sort of pendling. There's the It goes in and then down and then it comes back out again to a, not really a flat spot. It's just all caliche. It's just all just loose stuff out all the way to this next yeah. edge. And then you would i guess attach somehow and go on down that way, well i i don't I still don't know anything about repelling. I've done repelling one time into a cave, and I discovered you cannot repel back up.
2: no, no, you're ascending that's a whole yeah. different animal, yeah, well, it was inside of a cave,
1: I bet. That's another story I could just tell you and just blow your mind. But Yeah, it's supposed to go faster for you. You're really tall. <laughs> well, yeah. I was climbing up the damn sides of this because the little Peruvian guys with us, they got Kathy out. They were pulling her out. Oh, great. They, they couldn't pull me out. I had to climb up the wall. And in the wall, stuck right in that hole right there yeah. in my hand, is a spider as big as a dinner plate. With oh, my yeah. red glowing eyes looking at me, it has like an exoskeleton. Ugh. It looks like something from science sci-fi horror show, and I had oh. navigate that on slippery ass rocks, climbing fifty feet out of a hole.
2: Hmm. Anyway, no, that, that <laughs> the, the, a- the gear, the gear bringing. So they had a couple thousand feet of rope. They were planning on doing like anchoring That's down and.
1: That's all the rope they brought. I just don't get it.
2: Oh. Um Yeah. Alright. All so, so I okay, so I saw that episode. I I you know full disclosure, I know Scott, but I've never asked about the episode. I've never I never ask we, we don't talk about the show, but I've I saw that episode and as a climber, to your point, I was I didn't understand how they I, I saw the video of climbers dangling at like Wherever they ended up dangling, and my only thought myself as a climber was just, well, where are they going to anchor in? Uh, where were they? You know, how are they going to do multi pitch down? Because at that point, it's thirty two hundred feet. At that point, at that right mile now. marker, and that's at the height for everyone listening. If you go off-road, off road uh, off, you know, if you get to this location where the Kincaid Cave is supposed to be, for you to descend at that point, it's about thirty two hundred and fourteen or forty feet somewhere in there to the river, and that is not a straight descent, like you said it's like it has these uh goes out, it goes in, and you don't have an easy descent, so if you're going to go down to eighteen hundred feet from the riverbed and you're starting at thirty two hundred feet, well the math doesn't really work out if you only have a few hundred feet in a row. <laughs>
1: Exactly. <laughs> you're not going to get there. I, you know what? That I just told them. <clears throat> you guys know what you're doing. Go yeah. ahead.
2: I'll be yep. shooting video.
1: Yeah. And um, you know, because I don't know a thing about doing this. <clears throat> so
2: I'm. I, I'm here's, just. You had such part. an opportunity. It's like you're there. You got people who want to do it. And it's like, oh, it's just part. Part of me is just like, oh, you just you're you're willing to go over the side. And as a side note, uh, one of the things I shared with Gary when we got back, uh, we were we had parked at a nearby... Uh, it was a spot that most people go to take pictures. Apparently it was in a movie, I think, uh, Natural Born Killers. There's a bridge or something that was from that movie and whatever. It's a famous uh, lookout point over the river. And we had parked one of our vehicles there because... Again, for those that don't know, to get out to this site to descend, uh, you have to drive on an all... You need an all-terrain vehicle. You cannot drive out there in just a, a normal vehicle. That's a bad idea. But when we got back, Jerry, there were five men that looked like they were dressed casually. They were not casual men. They were big. They were all in the same age group. They all looked like they were ass kickers. And they all were all of them individually five men were leaning on the vehicle using their phones, but they weren't really using their phones. They were really paying more attention to us. And they and again we we were there for a total of on site for four days, uh, taking photos and looking very close with eight K cameras, really close to where you know we were supposed to find things. But this was the last day, and it. This out that we had uh, five guys that completely they fit no they they were not there they were not tourists they were not they were clearly not you know wearing a suit but they weren't there to be tourists they were specifically waiting for us in this parking lot and it was very interesting because you know other than going looking for it like you said it's like what are the motivations for us. You know, like even there's an interest from a lot of groups to just not even change the timeline of our history. And, you know, for as much as you talked before about going to all these places in the jungle, I mean, how often have you how often in your experience? I got to ask what as the institutionalization, the the, the big institutions, how often have they been upset with you uh, going off looking for things or finding things? They just
1: mock us and make fun of us and say that we, we didn't we didn't find a lost city. It was an old Spanish settlement. Oh, that's annoying. Uh, you know, I'm, these are world class experts who. Yeah. Uh, I've forgotten her name now, but anyway, she's a, she's one of the big dogs in the world about mummies and ancient cities and so forth. These people who were in Peru, um, they call them the Chachapoya which doesn't mean that's who they were. We know full well who they were. They were from the Middle East, and they were part of the entourage of um, the Phoenicians who were trading in that area. Uh, So uh, we found all all this information. It's it's like not guesswork. It's all absolute. But the Phoenicians, um, when that volcano erupted and I forgot the year, but it pretty much put soot in the sky. Yeah. And the Phoenicians were guiding by the stars. So they weren't able to navigate. And because of that, their wealth and and, uh, prosperity began to decline. And it was shortly after that, that the Roman Empire came and overwhelmed them and took them over. Well, these folks didn't get back over that part of South America. And the yeah. the small city factories that were set up there uh, to produce this blue uh, blue powder of the dye, yeah. the, the the royal blue, plus you know everything else that they were getting in the in their trading, you know all that just evaporated, and these people are left there not knowing what the hell to do, and so they never made it back. They moved out and they went to where it was safe, which was higher up into the Andes. And up there is where you find these megalithic buildings that have the same building uh, construction modality as you find in the Middle East, in Egypt and Turkey and you know many other places. It's because the same people who made those and knew how to make those also were there and they just used their skills to make themselves a new town. Because they were blond haired blue-eyed, or red-haired, green-eyed. Uh, they weren't like the normal little, you know, uh, natives of the area. Totally different. And when the trading stopped, they were like foreign invaders. So they wanted to get the hell out of there and go someplace safe. That's why you have places like Quayla. Uh, and a whole bunch of other places... Uh, Kathy and I found, well, because of her, we found five different lost cities up in the Andes, never been discovered before. And they're oh, still awesome. undiscovered because we don't tell anybody where the hell they're at. Good. There's gold and riches and all kinds of stuff. And you know, as soon as you start talking about this sort of thing, where is it? It yeah. won't, won't have the historical advantage that it has currently. It's so anyway, It's frustrating. Yeah, and the same thing with this cave. You know, they call it Kincaid's Cave, um, <clears throat> which is fine. Um, but I don't know how much is left inside of there because they did remove from all the reports we've gotten, they did remove quite a bit. We, uh, when we broke the story hack like, 2002 maybe um we had this online presence called expeditions magazine as you know it was well before doing video was a thing and you know we had lots and lots of people who were subscribers to that one of these people was a fellow who worked at the smithsonian uh, we didn't know anything about him until he started sending us some pictures because he was yeah. going through some of the warehouses and he said, does this look like, you know, what might have been in that cave about this? And they were just really oh. crude photos of just crap camera. Yeah. But doing it in a clandestine way. So we don't know if it's the stuff from the cave or not, but he said there was a whole section uh, devoted to this part of the country and he was looking through it And he just decided to snap some pictures. So, you know, it's like visions of Indiana Jones, you know, when the Ark of the Covenant goes into the big warehouse. It's what's playing in my mind when I saw these pictures. Like, where the hell is this place and how do I get into it? So, yeah, you know, um, there are still things there, I'm quite certain. But, you know, getting in there... At this point, I don't know how in the world should ever do it. Hmm. Do you think it was an actual city inside, or was it just for storage? Oh yeah, no, it was an actual city. It was a working underground city. Hmm. Um, they took an existing uh, cave and somehow turned it into a place for God knows how many people to live there. It was an operational center, and. Mostly, uh, from what we can tell from historical records, uh, gosh, there was a a very large sphere of influence. You know, Chaco Canyon, northern Utah, southern Arizona, all across California. These people knew about this place. It was a sacred place that you didn't go without invitation. So... People left them alone. The only people that I think that probably uh, were on in that gray area might be the giants who lived in that area as well. But I think even the giants were leaving these folks alone. Uh, We don't really have much in the way of reporting on that. You know, we were just going by stories we've been told from, you know, various uh, Native American cultures. Who who do you think was in there? I think they were from Asia. Mm -hmm. But I think there were other people from other parts of the world in there as well. I don't buy it that it was Egyptian. Egyptian artifacts, Egyptian this, that, or the other. There might have been Egyptians that showed up there, and I bet there were. Because they were traveling all over the world as well. We know they were in Australia. We know they were here in the United States but I don't think that they were the predominant population. Just like, you know, uh, Phoenicians, for example, they would have been the predominant population uh, for this area. They would have shown up, but with them, they would have had people from different areas of Africa, different parts of the Middle East, even as far away as the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, England, Italy. I mean, the, there, the Phoenicians were a group of traders who hired others to work who had skills. And they had the boats and they had the connections. So it wasn't like the boat was full of just Phoenicians. There, there, was, there was a whole complex uh, society that was going on on each one of these city boats because these boats were huge they were just huge and you know there were just a whole variety of different cultures there and i know that that's exactly what's happening from everything that we can tell from the research that's been done uh kathy mostly that's been done to give us some idea who these people were how about the timeline like what
0: at what time do you think that these people inhabited that city
1: That's really a tough one, um, because I'm not very good with time. But so far as I can tell, we're talking somewhere between, let's just round numbers, you know, and and this is more of a guess than it is anything. But I'm guessing it's like 800 B.C. to about about 1,000 A.D., but an 1,800-year period there. Um, I've forgotten what the the date was on those records that Kathy found for, um, you know, for the Asians coming over here. But there's terrific levels of evidence, you know, supporting all of this. Uh, Gee whiz, I mean, one of the things she found was um, uh, in a Mormon pamphlet in... 1910, I think it was, there was a story that was just, this is from the UK. And it was a story about how these Mormons were going up the Colorado River and they decided to go off to the right, which would be the Gila River. And that they encountered this Amazing ancient city there. With people still living in it. We've never been able to find this place. But. You know they they talk about it. You know very specifically. They talk about how they landed on this one island. And on this island. uh, They rested for a couple of days. And that they had uh, met people there. Who were much like themselves. And. Then they went on up the Colorado River, and they went off to the right of the Gila River. Most people don't realize that when these rivers were flowing, I mean, you've got um, the Gila River, the Colorado River, uh, San Pedro, uh, i trying to remember the names of all these, uh, the Rio Grande. There was a network of rivers for example, you could go from the, the Gulf of California, following these rivers, with a large sailing vessel, you get all the way over to the Gulf of Mexico. That's how vast wow. and deep these rivers were. And I never knew that until the past few years. We started mapping that out, and it's like, what the hell? This is just really an amazing story. Because it explains now how these people, you know, a good example Rio Puerco. I think it's Rio Puerco in New Mexico. It used to be one of these vastly huge rivers as well. Uh, is is the Rio Puerco or the the Pecos River right there at the at the uh, Decalog Stone? You remember? What is it? I can't can't remember. Kathy yeah, thinks was was river. Well, at any rate, in Las Lunas, New Mexico, you've got the Decalogue Stone, and the Decalogue Stone basically has the Ten Commandments written on it in Oh, in, in First Hebrew. It was first discovered in modern times in the uh, mid 1800s because the Paiutes wanted to have the settlers take a look at it. Said, "Can you read this? What does this mean?" They didn't have a clue. No one knew what it said until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and then they said, "Oh, this is a." Uh, version of Hebrew, it's 1st Hebrew. And so they uh, could then read it's the Ten Commandments. There's an accompanying stone further up on the mountain, which is where the temple was commemorated with a star chart and a date and it's dedicated to King Solomon. Hmm. And when we first started going there, there were uh, glyphs on the rocks showing the type of boats they used. Well, we looked that up, and it's the same kind of boats that the Templars were using, with the same flag the Templars were flying on the damn mast. And we couldn't figure, This is just a, a little squirrely-ass river. It's not hardly any water in there at all. How could it possibly be that this kind of a big boat would have come up oh, that little creek? Because all it amounts to now, if, if there's even any water in it. But... Yeah, it's Decalogue Stone is right there, sitting right next to the um, uh, the county, you know, dump. And people go on there now and defaced it. But when you <clears throat> when we saw it to begin with, that, that damn granite rock was polished like a mirror. It was unmistakable what you were looking at there. So, anyway, I'm rambling. Other questions? <laughs> Jared. Did
0: you freeze? Hmm. <clears throat> so how much do you think was pulled out of the cave? And like actually uh, a different one, actually, because if this is all true, okay, to me, I guess this obviously shows that there was more commerce, and more civilization prior to what we currently say in our current timeline of like 300,000 years. Mm -hmm. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, 300,000 years, if you take a look backwards, uh, the Noah flood was about 6,000 years ago. And 6,000 years before that, the Earth just walked over on its side and destroyed about 95% of of, of mankind. A lot of species went extinct. Uh, and, you know, it's because of a micronova. nova. Uh, so prior to that, you've got things like uh, Gobekli Tepli. And uh, well, that place uh, in Turkey, I can't think the name of it, but where they went underground. I mean, we we've seen even in the Andes, entire cities like that place in Turkey built inside the damn mountain. Mm -hmm. I mean, huge complex places high up in the Andes inside the mountain. So, you know, as far as uh, as commerce goes and civilizations, you know, within the past 6,000 years, there was a terrific level of movement across the face of the earth. And some of these people were able to do it because they had remnants of that ancient knowledge. I mean, take a look at the Perry Reese map, for example, that, that would give you a pretty clear idea that someone knew how to draw a map of South uh, of the South Pole without ice on it. So you've got you know, a terrific level of commerce and travel occurring across this globe, and it has been for a very long time. If you go back prior to 12,000 years, then you start getting into the gray and the fringe, because after what happened to the Earth about 12,000 years ago, there's not a lot of records left, except in places where it might not have been destroyed, And these are the things that Kathy and I were looking for up in the Andes, and we found a few things that are completely unexplainable, and they are before that 12,000 year period. But these are the things that you also see, like with the pyramids, uh, the giant stones at Baalbek, uh, even the construction methods at Sacsayhuaman, Machu Picchu, Ollantaytambo, you know, all these places, you find that you know tiwanaku is a very good example and pumapunku um, terrific levels of skill and ability to masterfully work these stones in such a way that you don't even need any cement to keep them together uh, but this is going to be the people prior to the last time the earth came to an end And the only thing left are these magnificent structures that really could not be that easily destroyed. But you take a look at uh, Tiwanaku, um, gosh, (laughs) it was pretty well knocked around. But the ocean came up over Tiwanaku, and that's why it's buried under silt. You know, all those hills around Tiwanaku, if you take a look, at the lay of the land, just here's there's plenty of small hills all over the place. Those are all ancient structures under feet of silt. And like uh unlike Tiwanaku, Tiwanaku there was something still left, you know, above the sand and the uh ancient cultures went there and started using it much the same way as they did at Machu Picchu. They uh they showed up so this is pretty groovy, so let's just make it look, you know, like what we envisioned it should be. And so you see these different building styles, you know, in many of these places. Um, the farther you go north and deeper into the Andes, the less and less you see of the the native inhabitants actually doing anything to change the structure of the, uh, the buildings that are so deep into the jungle. When we went there, I mean, the people that were living in the valley thought that we were the return of those who lived in those cities. Because I was tall. Kathy has, you know, uh, blondish, slightly red hair. And my hair was down, you know, to my shoulders. and It was more red than it was uh, brown. And we're just casually walking, you know, 85 miles up a river to get to one of these lost cities. Kathy mapped it out from a rock. (laughs) We didn't know it was there until we got there. But um, these people, the point is, these people who lived in those low-lying areas, they wanted nothing to do with going up there. Because even when we were there, they said, these places are haunted. We won't go there. Unless you give me 50 bucks, and then I probably will. So we gave him 50 bucks, and we went.
2: It was, a, it was a hell of a time. I apologize. I keep cutting out, but while I can, did you go in any of these underground cities? Um, not
1: really, because <clears throat> our son did. He's much younger, more spry. I can't imagine uh,
2: they're very accessible.
1: They are if you know where to go. You know, you probably heard about the tunnels that go under the Andes, go for great lengths, great distances. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been in a few of those. And they're the real deal. You know, there's there's nothing sketchy about whether it's real or not. It's absolutely real.
2: Um, and Do they look manufactured? Do they look like not caves? Do they look like they've been, like, I don't know, constructed?
1: Yeah. They are oh.
2: made. Wow.
1: You know, you know how smooth I don't know what you've seen, but there's some of these ancient sites the stone is as smooth as the front of a mirror, it's just like a piece of glass.
2: And are the tunnels like that?
1: Yeah, oh wow. In places, not always. I mean, they're so damn yeah. old, you have like little stalactites and stuff growing on them now
2: or Yeah, they're they're that smooth. old, but
1: Yeah, but But did you ever think, with any of these stones you've seen, let's say they're made out of granite. Next time you see one of these, a good question to ask yourself. How do you polish that stone, whether it's granite or basalt, androcyte, whatever, how do you polish it so that both the hard and the medium, and the softest stone are equally polished. You try to polish any of these things using what we have, you're going to have some pitting. Because if you start polishing the hard stone, it's going to pit out the most, uh, uh, the, the softer part of the stone. And yet, these stones... From hardest to softest material is equally polished. We figured out how they did it. But that's a question when you when you look at this, you, you start wondering how on earth
2: was it done? It's I'm very curious some of the tunnels you were in, did they go for did you know how far you went or did you just kinda of peek in the front or the did you Go miles? I didn't
1: go miles. I wasn't prepared for that. Um, Probably a few hundred feet. There was they tall.
2: Yeah, I mean, like are they fifty feet, uh, hundred foot wide, or what? What? What?
1: I've heard some that are supposed to be big like that, but I never saw it. Um, What I saw, it was probably let's say four, maybe five foot wide and I'm nearly seven foot tall. I'm 6'9", and it was above my head. And it was just, right. you know, it wasn't squared off. It was just like, you know, sloped, nice and rounded. No sharp rocks to poke your head into or anything. It was really nice. This one wow. that I went to above Cusco, went in there. Uh, there. There's like this cave, of course. And then there are steps carved into the stone, and they're old wow. as hell. You, take, you just walk down these steps, it goes down, down goes off to the left, and it goes off to the right a little bit, and goes all the way down. And then once you're down there, there's the tunnel. And in some of these, there's another one I know of, it has like extruded from the stone, this huge serpent on this side going out and a huge serpent on the other side going in. And it's perfect. It's smooth and it's perfect and it's a damn big snake. Over here and over there. You go down inside of it, you go down little ways, there is a chamber and uh, like an altar. And right above this altar... There's a hole that goes all the way up through this mountain so that when the sun is directly overhead or the moon, it shines down specifically right in the center of that altar. It's a hell of a thing to see at night. I've been there under a full moon. It's just absolutely dazzling. Uh, This altar, it's probably eight foot wide by... Five foot deep. It's not a a square. It's kind of a like not a pie shape either. But it's it's just an obtuse angle really, because it conforms to the back of the cave. But this thing is just as smooth as still water. I mean, just like a piece of glass. The top of this alcot, and it looks like it's been melted, but it hasn't. It's all basalt. I and mean, all this thing, these the rooms in there, the continuation of it, everything—it's it's all out of basalt. It's like the hardest material in the world, you know, for rocks. And it's—it's it's just very carefully carved and polished and made to look ornate. In some places, we found that, um, like in Tiwanaku, the, the Gateway of the Sun, Tiwanaku. That was quarried 500 miles away. It was quarried and crafted and finished before it was ever moved to Tiwanaku. And then once it was moved there, it was set in a specific place and no one now knows where that's supposed to be. So it's just sitting out there, you know, amidst everything else. But there's other places in the Andes where they did something very similar imagine a block of basalt that is as tall as um, two cars probably 15 foot from one edge to the other the rock because you're up in the side of a mountain so the rock of the mountain is removed this basalt is then shaped and a square peg and a square hole and then they put all the embellishing touches on it and inside the cave where this thing is, the locals have always been afraid of it. Maybe not now because they're making some money off tourists. But when we discovered it years and years ago, they wouldn't go up there because periodically there is a golden fireball that shows up inside this cave at another altar in this next cavern, that great big hole, and there's the other cavern. And this golden fireball shows up and just shines light right down uh into you know not that far down to the creek, probably fifteen hundred feet down to the creek. It's like a spotlight. They don't like that stuff. It scared the hell out of them. So the Jesuits went in there in um, 1600s, pounded holes into it, stuck dynamite in it, explosives of some sort, and they blew up this cavern back here behind me where the light shows up, and they blew chunks out of this beautiful temple, you know, ornate thing, whatever it was, that's right there at the entrance of the cave, made out of basalt. And that basalt did not come from that area. It weighs dozens, or who knows how many tons. I mean, it's just gigantic. And it was, it was taken from somewhere else and moved all the way across the Andes to this place, lifted up, shaped into a square plug, put into the damn hole. It's unbelievable. But we see this stuff over and over and over again.
2: Yeah, it's really incredible.
1: So it, it is, and for it, uh, for the
2: storyline for history doesn't make sense at all.
1: No, as a matter of fact, one of the things with uh, this thing of the Grand Canyon and the giants and so many other things that are out there that either have been found or could be found, <clears throat> it was pretty much an edict with Wesley Powell because he is involved with the church. And if it doesn't conform to the Bible, if it doesn't prove the Bible, if it doesn't follow a parallel line with the Bible, it's heresy, it doesn't apply, it's not real, throw it the hell away. Get rid of it. Yeah. Because that, that contradicts the Bible. Well, there's a lot of stuff that went missing, got destroyed, like um, the stuff from the Kincaid cave, for example, or... The giants. Hell, we know where there are giants buried. We've been there. We've been to the gravesite. Uh, did,
2: uh, did you get pictures of bones of anything? Or
1: No, it was, you can't. No. You can't because if you are close enough to do that, you're in trouble. Yeah. We got to the gravesite where the big holes were just drilled straight down into the sandstone and then a border put around it. I mean, this is really, really old stuff. And the 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 bodies, there was three and right there is where the giants are buried. The reason we know that is because the fellow who took us there to show us when he was with us, he was in his 80s. It's a hell of a climb to get there. i was surprised he was able to make it. But when he was in his teens, he and his buddy were treasure hunting. This is in Utah. And they dug up several giants looking for stuff. And they found, you know, giant skeletons. They didn't find any treasure. So they put them back, filled in the holes. So I asked him, can you take me to one of these places? He says, sure, let's go, Jer." And we took off we put together a team and we went there and uh, I did a video about it uh it's um it's in our members area at dot com I forgot the name of it it's called utah expedition uh but it was it was a terrific journey and and to see this is like amazing
2: yeah wow Damn. Gary I'm talking all the time come on yeah. you got questions
0: uh, now I'm ready to uh I think this has been a good episode, and well, I think we should do maybe if you guys are into it, a part two.
2: Yeah, it sounds like we should because I think like, like,
0: like now that, that especially now, you know I think y- your work jared and, and, and what Jerry's doing sort of intersect
2: they they do seem to dovetail well,
0: yeah, and, and also obviously my interest too.
2: But yeah, Jerry, if you're up for it, we should do this, we should do a part two. That sounds fine. Just let me know when. I'm open to it. All right. Yeah, Gary, you want to kick us out of here and we'll schedule no, well, something Well for first, first
0: first I want Jerry to plug give a plug out to his website and his media and
2: all that. Sure. Um well, oh, no Jerry. What's that? Yeah, Jerry's got a – we got you have to gratuitously plug all your stuff right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, I'll do that. Just noticing the uh, the gamma on my camera is kind of whacked out.
2: Oh, I've um, had the worst problems today, so this is, this is a first. Apparently, it's podcasting one one for me over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the
1: uh, the the web address. Uh, there are two of them, and one you're looking for is going to be uh, where all of our videos, all of our archives, everything is stored. And that's going to be jerrywillsshow.com. It's a membership site. Um, And there are progressive layers that you can access with progressive levels of membership. Um, But go take a look, see what you think. Uh, We do have quite a bit of things there as well. Uh, A lot of videos that are in the free category under special broadcasts. the other site is jerrywills.com. My, uh, the other hat that I wear, besides being a broadcaster, and is uh, I work as a healer. And I've been doing that my entire life. I just, you know, people say, well, what do you do? I, say, I don't know. I just fix people. Um, anyway, if you, you look up information about me online, you probably figure out, you know, what that means, what it's all about. I basically have a a, a psychic talent that I've been able to employ to um, help people feel better and to get better and so forth. So, uh, that's jerrywills.com. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, Pretty much
0: everything. And and Jared, where can people locate you although my face for my listeners know, but (laughs) yeah yeah i've been a a little tied up
2: for a couple months yeah a little tied up but uh not com still there on youtube and uh there will be lots of new podcasts and stuff coming here on everything imaginable and everywhere else i co-host and also interview on and then the shows that we're working on now are you know we have some we'll have some internet stuff and on not aliens and then of course uh Our our new expeditionary plans, we'll start updating people about Belize, and there'll be a lot of stuff coming now that I'm not tied up in a hospital.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming on, and we'll set up a part two of this. It's been really a pleasure. And just hang on for a moment, and I'm going to play the outro. All
2: right. Sounds good.
3: Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at EverythingImaginable2020.com or message him at EverythingImaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guarantee. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. loved what you listened to today don't forget to rate review subscribe and share again thank you for listening to everything imaginable with Gary Cochulio